Hello, and welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast. Before we begin, a reminder that there are only two weeks left to get in any recordings of lines for minor characters. At this point, almost every single male role has been taken. There are, however, still several female roles left, including named characters. A link at the website will direct you where to go if you're interested. To everyone who has contributed voices so far, thank you so much. The response has been incredible. Secondly, two weeks from today is December 31st, right in the middle of the holidays. I'm going to be on vacation in Michigan during that time, so I'm pushing forward the next podcast by one week. The next episode will air three weeks from today, on January 7th. This week we bring you more selected essays by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Your Strength as a Rationalist by Eliezer Yudkowsky August 2007 The following happened to me in an IRC chat room long enough ago that I was still hanging around in IRC chat rooms. Time has fuzzed the memory, and my report may be imprecise. So there I was, in an IRC chat room, when someone reports that a friend of his needs medical advice. His friend says that he's been having sudden chest pains, so he called an ambulance, and the ambulance showed up, but the paramedics told him it was nothing and left, and now the chest pains are getting worse. What should his friend do? I was confused by this story. I remembered reading about homeless people in New York who would call ambulances just to be taken someplace warm, and how the paramedics always had to take them to the emergency room, even on the 27th iteration, because if they didn't, the ambulance company could be sued for lots and lots of money. Likewise, emergency rooms are legally obligated to treat anyone, regardless of ability to pay, and the hospital absorbs the costs, which are enormous, so hospitals are closing their emergency rooms. It makes you wonder what's the point of having economists if you're just going to ignore them. So I didn't quite understand how the described events could have happened. Anyone reporting sudden chest pains should have been hauled off by an ambulance instantly. And this is where I fell down as a rationalist. I remembered several occasions where my doctor would completely fail to panic at the report of symptoms that seemed, to me, very alarming. And the medical establishment was always right. Every single time. I had chest pains myself at one point, and the doctor patiently explained to me that I was describing chest muscle pain, not a heart attack. So I said into the IRC channel, Well, if the paramedics told your friend it was nothing, it must really be nothing. They'd have hauled him off if there was the tiniest chance of serious trouble. Thus, I managed to explain the story within my existing model, though the fit still felt a little forced. Later on, the fellow comes back into the IRC chat room and says his friend made the whole thing up. Evidently, this was not one of his more reliable friends. I should have realized, perhaps, that an unknown acquaintance of an acquaintance in an IRC channel might be less reliable than a published journal article. Alas, belief is easier than disbelief. We believe instinctively, but disbelief requires a conscious effort. So instead, by dint of mighty straining, I forced my model of reality to explain an anomaly that never actually happened. And I knew how embarrassing this was. I knew that the usefulness of a model is not what it can explain, but what it can't. A hypothesis that forbids nothing permits everything, and thereby fails to constrain anticipation. 
Your strength as a rationalist is your ability to be more confused by fiction than by reality. If you are equally good at explaining any outcome, you have zero knowledge. We are all weak from time to time. The sad part is that I could have been stronger. I had all the information I needed to arrive at the correct answer. I even noticed the problem. And then I ignored it. My feeling of confusion was a clue, and I threw my clue away. I should have paid more attention to that sensation of still feels a little forced. It's one of the most important feelings a truth seeker can have, a part of your strength as a rationalist. It is a design flaw in human cognition that this sensation manifests as a quiet strain in the back of your mind, instead of a wailing alarm siren and a glowing neon sign reading, Either your model is false, or this story is wrong. Universal Fire, Eliezer Yudkowsky, April 2007 In L. Sprague de Camp's fantasy story, The Incomplete Enchanter, which set the mold for the many imitations that followed, the hero, Harold Shea, is transported from our own universe into the universe of Norse mythology. This world is based on magic rather than technology. So naturally, when our hero tries to light a fire with a match brought along from Earth, the match fails to strike. I realize it was only a fantasy story, but... How do I put this? No! In the late 18th century, Antoine Laurent de Lavoisier discovered fire. What? You say. Hasn't the use of fire been dated back for hundreds of thousands of years? Well, yes, people used fire. It was hot, bright, sort of orangey-colored, and you could use it to cook things. But nobody knew how it worked. Greek and medieval alchemists thought that fire was a basic thing, one of the four elements. In Lavoisier's time, the alchemical paradigm had been gradually amended and greatly complicated, but fire was still held to be basic, in the form of phlogiston, a rather mysterious substance which was said to explain fire and also every other phenomenon in alchemy. Lavoisier's great innovation was to weigh all the pieces of the chemical puzzle, both before and after the chemical reaction. It had previously been thought that some chemical transmutations changed the weight of the total material. If you subjected finely ground antimony to the focused sunlight of a burning glass, the antimony would be reduced to ashes after one hour, and the ashes would weigh one-tenth more than the original antimony, even though the burning had been accompanied by the loss of a thick white smoke. Lavoisier weighed all the components of such reactions, including the air in which the reaction took place, and discovered that matter was neither created nor destroyed. If the burnt ashes increased in weight, there was a corresponding decrease in the weight of the air. Lavoisier also knew how to separate gases, and discovered that a burning candle diminished the amount of one kind of gas, vital air, and produced another gas, fixed air. Today, we would call them oxygen and carbon dioxide. When the vital air was exhausted, the fire went out. One might guess, perhaps, that combustion transformed vital air into fixed air and fuel to ash, and that the ability of this transformation to continue was limited by the amount of vital air available. 
Lavoisier's proposal directly contradicted the then-current phlogiston theory. That alone would have been shocking enough. But it also turned out... To appreciate what comes next, you must put yourself into an 18th century frame of mind. Forget the discovery of DNA, which occurred only in 1953. Unlearn the cell theory of biology, which was formulated in 1839. Imagine looking at your hand, flexing your fingers, and having absolutely no idea how it worked. The anatomy of muscle and bone was known, but no one had any notion of what makes it go. Why a muscle moves and flexes, while clay molded into a similar shape just sits there. Imagine your own body being composed of mysterious, incomprehensible gloop. And then imagine discovering that humans, in the course of breathing, consumed vital air and breathed out fixed air. People also ran on combustion! Lavoisier measured the amount of heat that animals and his assistant Seguin produced when exercising, the amount of vital air consumed and the fixed air breathed out. When animals produced more heat, they consumed more vital air and exhaled more fixed air. People, like fire, consumed fuel and oxygen. People, like fire, produced heat and carbon dioxide. Deprive people of oxygen or fuel and the light goes out. Matches catch fire because of phosphorus. Safety matches have phosphorus in the ignition strip. Strike anywhere matches have phosphorus in the match heads. Phosphorus is highly reactive. Pure phosphorus glows in the dark and may spontaneously combust. Henning Brand, who purified phosphorus in 1669, announced that he had discovered elemental fire. Phosphorus is thus also well-suited to its role in adenosine triphosphate, ATP, your body's chief method of storing chemical energy. ATP is sometimes called the molecular currency. It invigorates your muscles and charges up your neurons. Almost every metabolic reaction in biology relies on ATP and therefore on the chemical properties of phosphorus. If a match stops working, so do you. You can't change just one thing. The surface level rules, matches catch fire when struck, and humans need air to breathe, are not obviously connected. It took centuries to discover the connection, and even then, it still seems like some distant fact learned in school, relevant only to a few specialists. It is all too easy to imagine a world where one surface rule holds and the other doesn't, to suppress our credence in one belief but not the other. But that is imagination, not reality. If your map breaks into four pieces for easy storage, it doesn't mean that the territory is also broken into disconnected parts. Our minds store different surface-level rules in different compartments, but this does not reflect any division in the laws that govern nature. We can take the lesson further. Phosphorus derives its behavior from even deeper laws, electrodynamics and chromodynamics. Phosphorus is merely our word for electrons and quarks arranged in a certain way. 
You cannot change the chemical properties of phosphorus without changing the laws governing electrons and quarks. If you stepped into a world where matches fail to strike, you would cease to exist as organized matter. Reality is laced together a lot more tightly than humans might like to believe. Fake Explanations Eliezer Yudkowsky, August 2007 Once upon a time, there was an instructor who taught physics students. One day, she called them into her class and showed them a wide square plate of metal next to a hot radiator. The students each put their hand on the plate and found the side next to the radiator cool and the distant side warm. And the instructor said, Why do you think this happens? Some students guessed convection of air currents, and others guessed strange metals in the plate. They devised many creative explanations, none stooping so low as to say, I don't know, or, this seems impossible. And the answer was that before the students entered the room, the instructor had turned the plate around. Consider the student who frantically stammers, Eh, maybe because of the heat conduction and so. I ask, is this answer a proper belief? The words are easily enough professed, said in a loud, emphatic voice. But do the words actually control anticipation? Ponder that innocent little phrase, because of, which comes before, heat conduction. Ponder some of the other things that we could put after it. We could say, for example, because of phlogiston, or because of magic. Magic! You cry. That's not a scientific explanation! Indeed, the phrases because of heat conduction and because of magic are readily recognized as belonging to different literary genres. Heat conduction is something that Spock might say on Star Trek, whereas magic would be said by Giles in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. However, as Bayesians, we take no notice of literary genres. For us, the substance of a model is the control it exerts on anticipation. If you say heat conduction, what experience does that lead you to anticipate? Under normal circumstances, it leads you to anticipate that, if you put your hand on the side of the plate near the radiator, that side will feel warmer than the opposite side. If, because of heat conduction, can also explain the radiator-adjacent side feeling cooler, then it can explain pretty much anything. And as we all know by this point, I do hope, if you are equally good at explaining any outcome, you have zero knowledge. Because of heat conduction, used in such fashion, is a disguised hypothesis of maximum entropy. It is anticipation isomorphic to saying magic. It feels like an explanation, but it's not. Suppose that instead of guessing, we measured the heat of the metal plate at various points and various times. Seeing a metal plate next to the radiator, we would ordinarily expect the point temperatures to satisfy an equilibrium of the diffusion equation with respect to the boundary conditions imposed by the environment. You might not know the exact temperature of the first point measured, but after measuring the first points, I'm not physicist enough to know how many would be required, you could take an excellent guess as to the rest. 
a true master of the art of using numbers to constrain the anticipation of material phenomena, a physicist, would take some measurements and say, this plate was in equilibrium with the environment two and a half minutes ago, turned around, and is now approaching equilibrium again. The deeper error of the students is not simply that they failed to constrain anticipation. The deeper error is that they thought they were doing physics. They said the phrase because of, followed by the sort of words Spock might say on Star Trek, and thought they thereby entered the magisterium of science. Not so. They simply moved their magic from one literary genre to another. Tsuyoku Naritai! I want to become stronger. Eliezer Yudkowsky, March 2007 In Orthodox Judaism, there is a saying, The previous generation is to the next one as angels are to men. The next generation is to the previous one as donkeys are to men. This follows from the Orthodox Jewish belief that all Judaic law was given to Moses by God at Mount Sinai. After all, it's not as if you could do an experiment to gain new halakhic knowledge. The only way you can know is if someone tells you who heard it from someone else who heard it from God. Since there is no new source of information, it can only be degraded in transmission from generation to generation. Thus, modern rabbis are not allowed to overrule ancient rabbis. Crawly things are ordinarily unkosher, but it is permissible to eat a worm found in an apple. The ancient rabbis believed the worm was spontaneously generated inside the apple and therefore was part of the apple. A modern rabbi cannot say, Yeah, well, the ancient rabbis knew diddly squat about biology. Overruled! A modern rabbi cannot possibly know a halakhic principle the ancient rabbis did not because how could the ancient rabbis have passed down the answer from Mount Sinai to him? Knowledge derives from authority, and therefore is only ever lost, not gained, as time passes. When I was first exposed to the angels and donkeys proverb in religious elementary school, I was not old enough to be a full-blown atheist. But I still thought to myself, Torah loses knowledge in every generation. Science gains knowledge with every generation. No matter where they started out, sooner or later, science must surpass Torah. The most important thing is that there should be progress. So long as you keep moving forward, you will reach your destination. But if you stop moving, you will never reach it. Tsuyoku Naritai is Japanese. Tsuyoku is strong. Naru is becoming. And the form Naritai is want to become. Together it means, I want to become stronger, and it expresses a sentiment embodied more intensely in Japanese work than in any Western literature I've read. You might say it when expressing your determination to become a professional Go player, or after you lose an important match but you haven't given up, or after you win an important match but you're not a ninth Dawn player yet. Or, after you've become the greatest Go player of all time, but you still think you can do better. That is Tsuyoku Naritai, the will to transcendence. Tsuyoku Naritai is the driving force behind my essay, The Proper Use of Humility, in which I contrast the student who humbly double-checks his math test, and the student who modestly says, 
But how can we ever really know? No matter how many times I check, I can never be absolutely certain. The student who double-checks his answers wants to become stronger. He reacts to a possible inner flaw by doing what he can to repair the flaw, not with resignation. Each year on Yom Kippur, an Orthodox Jew recites a litany which begins, Ashamnu, Bagadnu, Gazalnu, Dibanu, Dafi, and goes on through the entire Hebrew alphabet. We have acted shamefully. We have betrayed. We have stolen. We have slandered. As you pronounce each word, you strike yourself over the heart in penitence. There's no exemption whereby, if you manage to go without stealing all year long, you can skip the word gazalnu and strike yourself one less time. That would violate the community spirit of Yom Kippur, which is about confessing sins, not avoiding sins so that you have less to confess. By the same token, the Ashamnu does not end, but that was this year, and next year I will do better. The Ashamnu bears a remarkable resemblance to the notion that the way of rationality is to beat your fist against your heart and say, We are all biased. We are all irrational. We are not fully informed. We are overconfident. We are poorly calibrated. Fine. Now tell me how you plan to become less biased, less irrational, more informed, less overconfident, better calibrated. There is an old Jewish joke. During Yom Kippur, the rabbi is seized by a sudden wave of guilt and prostrates himself and cries, God, I am nothing before you! The cantor is likewise seized by guilt and cries, God, I am nothing before you! Seeing this, the janitor at the back of the synagogue prostrates himself and cries, God, I am nothing before you! And the rabbi nudges the cantor and whispers, Look who thinks he's nothing. Take no pride in your confession that you too are biased. Do not glory in your self-awareness of your flaws. This is akin to the principle of not taking pride in confessing your ignorance. For if your ignorance is a source of pride to you, you may become loath to relinquish your ignorance when evidence comes knocking. Likewise with our flaws. We should not gloat over how self-aware we are for confessing them. The occasion for rejoicing is when we have a little less to confess. Otherwise, when the one comes to us with a plan for correcting the bias, we will snarl, Do you think to set yourself above us? We will shake our heads sadly and say, You must not be very self-aware. Never confess to me that you are just as flawed as I am unless you can tell me what you plan to do about it. Afterward, you will still have plenty of flaws left, but that's not the point. The important thing is to do better, to keep moving ahead, to take one more step forward. Tsuyoku Naritai! Thank you for listening. You can always read many more of Yudkowsky's writings at lesswrong.com. The music used is the intro and outro to Queensryche's Empire album. Come back in three weeks for two stories by Sam Hughes of Things of Interest. Things of Interest.